Good evening. I hope you guys don't mind. I'm not really a pulpit guy, so I'm going to stand down here. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be, or this evening rather, we're going to be going through a story that has kind of been relegated to almost kids' story status, and I want us to elevate the way that we understand this story. If you want to turn to the book of Jonah. Within Jonah, we find two big things I want us to be emphasizing as we think through this text. Number one, we see Jonah, the merciless prophet, who cares nothing for the people who he's supposed to be going out and telling to repent. And in contrast with that, we have a beyond merciful God, who is reaching out even beyond the borders of what Jonah and the people of Israel thought was who God truly loved, reaching even beyond those borders and willing to forgive them. And unfortunately, I think too often, if we look at ourselves and genuinely how we live our lives, we are a lot more like Jonah than we'd like to think. That we limit who we show God's mercy to. We think that God can only reach so far, and we underestimate his power. So as we go through this story, I want to remind us all that God's mercy is a lot greater than oftentimes we think that it is. If you want to begin reading with me in Jonah chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 1. The first three verses say, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. In these opening three verses, we see a command. Hey, Jonah, go and do this thing. And the automatic response of Jonah is, I don't want to. I'm going to run the opposite direction. It's important to note in this text, like even without the context we're given, Nineveh is a part of Assyria, and Assyria is known even in this time, before they become the powerhouse they do, they're known as barbaric and bloodthirsty and awful. Why in the world would God have me go there to those people? I don't want anything to do with them. But as we see in this text, Jonah, as he runs away from the commands of God, he's going to go on a descent. He goes down from Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He is retreating away from a God who he's going to even talk about later is sovereign and has created everything, but is committing an extremely foolish action. He thinks that to some capacity God is limited and I can perhaps run away from him. Now, when we look at this opening, we would, of course, say none of us would be in that position. None of us, when told by God, this is what we're called to do, I will never run away from that. But, I mean, I think it happens a lot more than we like to think it does. I think we become so obsessed with the things that we have and the things that are not about God that we just care more about those than about Him. And we limit how much sovereignty that God has over our lives. There are times where I'm going to pick and choose. This is when I'm going to be a Christian, and these are times when I'm not. 
Doesn't that limit where God is supposed to be operating within our lives? Now, this pattern continues with Jonah as we continue to read about him and his interactions with these uh, pagan mariners. Continue reading in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break. When the mariner, or then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah learns very quickly, as well as the other people on this boat with him, running away from God is not really a thing that is an option. You can flee away from Israel, but God is not limited to the national borders of Israel. Many of the other gods at this time, that's where you know. You're in this nation, this is where this God is powerful, this is where he's sovereign. But when it comes to Yahweh, the creators of heavens and earth, nowhere you go, you'll escape from him. So he sends out this mighty wave. He sends out this, this wind that's blowing over the ocean. And these mariners who live on the ocean are terrified, and that's how you know it's a bad storm. So everyone is freaking out, and they have an understanding this storm is not simply something we've handled before. This is like supernatural. We need divine intervention. We need help. So everyone is on, on top, trying to get things together, and Jonah is ignoring their plight asleep. Finally, he is woken up, and they have to even cast lots to say, all right, well, whose problem is this? Jonah's not willing to offer up that information. And finally, it comes down to him. The lot is cast. They find out it's him. And then he wants to reveal things. And what we have here in this revelation is extremely interesting. In verse 9, 
I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord and God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So, so Jonah, you know what you're doing. You know that you're running away from the one who created the sea you're trying to run away from. None of it makes sense. It's severe cognitive dissonance. But the problem with Jonah is he was so obsessed with his own mind and what he wanted to do and what he desired that he forgot that God had had mercy on him and his people. He doesn't even consider that maybe God's mercy needed to extend to the pagans who were on the ship with him. He didn't think about them and their plight and their situation, how they were being dragged down with him. And what is unbelievable in this story is a person who has a God who he knows to be loving and knows to be merciful. He has shown no mercy to the pagan sailors on this boat. But even once they learn all the information about Jonah and know that he's the reason for this storm, they keep trying to go. They want to protect him. They want to save him. He doesn't deserve that. He's just caught up with his own self, but they are not. Another interesting part to this story. Took me a while to see, but at no point does God come and say, hey, you need to be thrown in the sea for me to heal this. It's another attempt for Jonah to get out of his responsibility. I don't want to go. I'm going to run away again. And he thinks this time, if he's thrown into the sea, maybe this time I will escape. The men who are trying to battle for his life, have to throw him overboard, and afterwards show a lot deeper of a commitment to the Lord than Jonah does. It's a pretty shocking account that here is the Hebrew who's supposed to know better, and he's the one who has inadvertently driven these people to do the right thing, in spite of him, not because of him. In chapter 2, once Jonah is finally in the belly of this saving grace, we see a bit of humility and a bit of repentance, but there's still a lingering idea there, a lingering inconsistency. If you want to keep reading down chapter 2 with me. <clears throat> then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet again I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, there are some very good and very redeeming things that we should be praying along with Jonah in this prayer. 
Jonah has a better understanding that if he runs out onto the sea or descends into the depths of Sheol, no matter where he goes, God is there. And that is a genuine comfort. Even when it feels like I'm far away and I'm in darkness and distress, no one cares about me. I've been lost. Even there you know where I am, and you will protect me. In verse 4, he refers to his holy temple, and he refers to the holy temple yet again. The temple is associated with the presence of God, so he's talking about being driven away from the presence of God, but I will return, I will come back and dwell in your presence once again. He talks about how his life is fainting away. That's something he has no control over. It is God who gives life and takes away. He is dwelling in his mercy. In verse 8, he has a great acknowledgement, something that Israel fails to acknowledge consistently, and that is they go and worship these idols and think that they're going to bring him any sort of comfort, any sort of strength. Idols are vanity. Idols don't love you. Idols can't do anything for you. But the one true God, he can. So I am going to give thanks to you, and I will fulfill my vow. And the concluding line, I think probably the thesis of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Overall, this prayer is great. But I think we still have these hints and semblance that Jonah isn't fully repentant. In verse 3, Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. That's not true. That is a decision that Jonah made for himself. God is the only saving grace in that. God is the one who sent a provision so that he would not lose his life. And a big part of this as well, when we think about prayer and what the goal of prayer is, we ask God to work in our lives and intervene. But another thing we're supposed to do in prayer is it's supposed to change the way that we act. So the fact that we have this prayer in chapter 2, and this assertion about salvation belongs to you, God, and then his attitude doesn't really change. This prayer just feels very empty. Let's keep seeing how this works out for Jonah in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, 
how they turned away from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do, that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah is given a second chance. He gets thrown out on the shores, and now he's going to go into the city of Nineveh. I think it's important that our author says Nineveh is three days, and Jonah goes one day into the breath of the city. That even though he is going and doing as God has asked, he's going to do it kind of half-heartedly. He's going to do it, well, I'll just, I'll just go in there and say that I said these things. His message includes nothing of repentance or a hope for God having mercy on them or anything like that. Merely these 40 days and you'll be destroyed. No turn from your sin, nothing along those lines. We don't know exactly what God instructed Jonah to say, but it seems contrary to how God responds in Jonah's message. Regardless of Jonah's half-hearted effort and half-hearted preaching, the people of Nineveh start having a recognition of their shortcomings and their problems. And all of them start fasting, and they sit in sackcloth and ashes. It talks about how from the greatest of them to the least of them, we get to a picture of the king of Nineveh, this Assyrian king, so convicted about oncoming judgment and he gets off his throne and sits in ashes and he encourages everybody in all of Nineveh you don't just put sackcloth on you you put it on your animals everybody is covered in this one of my favorite parts of the story though is that Nineveh's showing of regret is not merely a showing. It's not simply, okay, if we sit in ashes long enough, it is also, let us turn away from the things that we're doing that are evil. Let's have a genuine repentance, a genuine heart change. Let's not just act like things have changed. Let's fix our exterior and that's gonna fix the problem. No, let's change the way that we're acting. Again, here we have a group of pagan mariners who have changed their actions and have vowed to the Lord. And now we have these bloodthirsty and barbaric Assyrians and their hearts are softened and they turn to the Lord. And then we have one Hebrew prophet whose heart remains hard. If you want to finish off the book of Jonah with me in chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life away from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. 
Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, or, uh, when the sun rose God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's a shocking opening to chapter 4, seeing the repentance of Nineveh, and you would think, well, job's accomplished. Things are going great. Chapter 4 opens with anger. Jonah is angry that God has shown mercy. He even prays to God, but prays to him angry and says, this is why I didn't want to leave. Because I knew that you are a merciful God. I knew about your steadfast love. And he issues it like it's a complaint. And I'm reading it like, oh, yes, thank you. Thank you for bringing this way, God. But part of Jonah's problem that is revealed in this text is he believed in mercy for himself, but not for the people who were around him. There were some that he had deemed as unworthy of God's mercy, but he, of course, himself was worthy of it. He asked God yet again to kill him. Just get rid of me. I'm tired of doing this. He sits there in vengeance, waiting for God to do something to finally destroy uh, the city of Nineveh. And as he's sitting there waiting, God gives him this plant. And he rejoices in the plant. And when God takes away this plant and causes the trial to come upon him, then yet again he turns to God and says, please, just get rid of me. I'm tired of this. Part of what Jonah struggles with here is a very human condition, something I see quite often and something I've seen in myself. Whenever something is done in our lives and it's good and it's a blessing and we're just, we're so excited about it, We think that's something that we've earned and something that we deserve. And then whenever a trial hits or we suffer or something just does not go the way we had planned, then that's not what I deserved. I deserve better than that. We forget our condition far too often. We forget that the mercy that God has had on us is not any merit of our own. There's nothing I did for God to love me. He just does because that's his nature. As many times as I have frustrated him and turned away from him and chosen my sin over him, he has shown me mercy. Jonah becomes obsessive about his loss of a plant, a plant that he did not labor for, a plant that he did nothing for. 
but had no mercy and no compassion for 120,000 people made in the image of God and all of their posterity. Jonah's mercy was extremely selfish and limited. I wouldn't even call it mercy at all. On the other hand, what we see from the story of Jonah is that God has mercy on all of these people. The pagan mariners who are worshiping these false idols and false gods just before, when they turn to the Lord, He has mercy on them and saves them. Jonah, who is wanting to throw himself off of a boat to save himself from doing what God has asked him to do, God saves him as well. And the people of Nineveh, evil, barbaric, hated by just about every nation at this time, even when they repent, God shows mercy to them. The real hero of the story, of course, is God, just as it is with the whole Bible story. Jonah is as much antagonist in the story as anything. As we wrap up and thinking about this book, I want to think about some of the tendencies that we have that are a lot more like Jonah's than pursuing the holiness and righteousness of our God. There are times we go through this life and we see people and we're like, this is a person who God's mercy cannot extend to. There are people that I'm just, I'm not going to talk to them about the message. There is no way that they would accept the good news. Even if I told them and even if I extended it to them, there's no way that they'd accept it. Whenever we know what God has done for us, and we decide in that moment what I'm going to do is not share the good news with them, we are deciding I get to decide who God has mercy on. That's a really tragic place to be, and we are swinging way out of our pay grade. What we understand about God is that He desires all people to be saved. And I want us to, when we get in those positions where we think about, well, that person is just too bad, or there's no way they would, you have to put yourself in that position. And remember that you are a wretch as well. That you are a sinner as well. That you are guilty as well. And the only reason you have not received the death penalty is because Jesus took it for you. Every time we get in that position and we remember that I am the one who needed mercy first, that is how I can extend that mercy to any person else in this world. I hung Jesus on that cross too. So that's a big part of you know, reminding ourselves of the position that we're in. But maybe I think there's also another response to this sermon, and that is, well, I don't understand why God has had mercy on me. I don't believe that I deserve that. And the reality is, yes, that's true. None of us do. And the reason God has had mercy on us is not because of something that we've done, but rather because He has steadfast love. And He has mercy towards us. The goal of the book of Jonah is not that we learn from Jonah, that we learn about his attitude. 
And hopefully, maybe there's something after Jonah where he actually repents. But our attitude should be reflecting on God and seeing the mercy that he has shown to all peoples and especially to us. And that is supposed to radically transform how we handle everything else in our lives. That is, God has shown me mercy, therefore I show others mercy. That is, Christ has died for them all, then I am going to love them all too, just as he loved them. I'm not going to place these boundaries on mercy that I am so often tempted to do because that is not my place. I know who God is. He has revealed that through His Son. And therefore, that is what I'm going to reflect each and every day. I'm so thankful that my God is a God of mercy because I know I don't deserve anything that He's given to me. Hopefully you recognize that too. And thankfully, His mercy is rather easy to accept. If you are struggling, you're lost, you feel like you have no hope, if you feel like Jonah in chapter 2 when you're drowning in the depths of the ocean, well, you can find mercy and you can find hope in Him. So I'm hopeful if there's a way that we can serve you and help you this evening, you'll do so. And with that, we'll be led in our invitation song.